Well, this time I'd like to invite the kids who are heading back to Children's Church to head back there. Meet Miss Brenda, ages three to five, three to kindergarten. Feel free to head back and join her for Children's Church. The rest of you I'd like to invite to turn to John chapter one. And before we begin, I want to do a little bit of explanation. We're doing, we're experimenting a little bit. It's a new year, so we're trying new things. Uh, one of the experience, experiments is the fact we're going to go through whole chapters of John at a time, which is a bigger chunk than we normally take. So we're going to try and work through that together. But something to help us in that, if you grabbed your bulletin this morning, in your bulletin, you should have a handout, a little flyer that looks like this. This is what we're calling a, a sermon supplement. I like the alliteration there. Yeah, we worked long and hard on that. Um, this basically is kind of the outline of the sermon in paper form for you. This week it's in your bulletin. Next week and from here on out, we'll just have it at the resource table. For those of you who want it, you can grab it on your way in. And we want to give this to you to kind of help you to, to take home. And as we'll explain, part of the reason we're doing the series is to encourage you to walk others through the book of John. And in the sermon supplement, we have here just kind of what we call the summary statement. That's the, the summarizing statement that kind of outlines the whole chapter. And we have main ideas that break up the chapter and try and give you a little bit of a flow of the passage because it's a big, you know, big chapter, a lot of verses in it. So we want to help you get the flow of it with the main ideas. And then we have two sections, one, truth about Christ and then grace for us uh, from that Jesus coming in grace and truth. So the truth about Christ is just what does this passage teach us about Christ? And I have a couple lines filled in for you that I'll explain. And then we have one blank. And the idea is you may see other things in there that we didn't talk about in the sermon because a lot of verses, I'm not going to cover everything. So there's room for you to fill out your own blank bullet point. And the same thing in the last section of this called grace for us. And that's the application. What are we supposed to take away from this passage? I have a couple application ideas at the end. And then, again, a blank bullet point for you to fill in your own application. What is the Lord um, calling us to do based on this passage? So that's a quick outline of what this is. It's there for you. Again, in your bulletin this week, it'll be at the resource table from here on out. And the sermon will largely follow uh, what I have written out here in this outline for you. So I just wanted to explain that to you. Again, I'll be honest with you. I'm a little nervous about this series. Taking this large a text each a week. It'll be a fun challenge uh, for me, for us, but I'm convinced that God will use his word. I'm not going to read the whole text at the beginning. I'll read, I will read the whole text as we work through, but what I would like you to do, if you're willing and able, just to stand with me as we pray and ask for God's help. Our Father and God, we ask you for help this morning. We first ask for those in, in children's church, that their time would be blessed, that you would use that to shape uh, young people in the image of Christ. And we ask, Lord, for your help for us in this room, and for many or any who may be uh, watching online. But as we work through the book of John, that your word would have its way with us and work in us to draw our hearts to you, to follow your son, Jesus Christ, the word. And pray that we would be particularly blessed through the book of John. And make us more like your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. It may or may not be difficult for you to do, but imagine that you've been going through a very difficult season of life. Again, for some of you, this might not be hard to imagine. But imagine you've been going through a difficult season and you've, been, you've had ups and downs. But you know the Lord and you have felt an unusual sense of the Lord's presence with you, maintaining you, keeping you in his joy through that difficult season. And you've felt uh, something of his presence and his peace and his joy. And you've noticed that. And not only have you noticed that, but maybe a friend or family member has noticed that also. And imagine this scenario that your friend or family member asks, how is it that you're able to go through this with so much peace and joy? How are you getting through this? Maybe you've had a friend or a family member ask you, how is it you're doing what you're doing? Like, what's the trick? And you recognize, this is an open door that God has provided me to talk about my faith. But you also know, uh, you're not a trained evangelist, you haven't taken classes on apologetics or how to share the gospel, so, and you're a little bit timid, and what you can work out, and which is true, is just to say, it's my faith. It's my faith that has helped me in this season. And well done, you've opened the door for further conversation. And now imagine that person actually wants to have further conversation. And they say, well, what do you mean your faith? Explain that to me. Now you have an even bigger open door. Imagine your friend, your family member asks you, tell me about your faith. Like, what is that? What do you do? You have a lot of good options, actually. I mean, you could go down the Romans road and explain to them the path of salvation through Jesus Christ. You could do that. It's a great option. You could talk about your own personal testimony with Jesus Christ and how the Lord has saved you. And that's a great option. You could do that. You could just try and say uh, anything you know about Jesus, and that's a good option. Right? Those are all good options. You could do the four spiritual laws. You could do two circles. You could do anything that you could come up with to talk about Jesus Christ. Those are all good options. The Lord uses it. But I want to present another option for you to consider. Maybe you say, when somebody asks you about your faith, maybe you say, you know, I can't actually explain it all to you right now. I don't have the words. Would you read John with me? Would you want to get together regularly? Let's grab coffee, grab lunch. Maybe just in the break room at work. Would you want to read John with me? That's the best way I could explain my faith to you is just by going through this book of the Bible. That's a huge, courageous, bold step, but it's something you could do and something we're actually encouraging you to consider or, or pray for the opportunity to do is to take somebody through the book of John. It's why we're doing this sermon series. Maybe in the next few weeks you find you have the opportunity to talk to somebody and say, hey, would you read John with me? Maybe the opportunity doesn't come in the next few weeks. Maybe it doesn't come for a couple of years. But a couple of years down the road, you recognize you have an open door to talk about Jesus Christ. And maybe several years down the road, you say, oh, I remember the sermon series we did where they told us, hey, taking people through the book of John is a good avenue of just introducing people to Jesus. So that's why we're doing this, to help you and to help me, for all of us, to walk people through a book of the Bible. And you say, well, why John? There's a very specific reason. John tells us why we should read his book. John 20, verses 30 through 31, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John tells us why he wrote his book, why he wrote the gospel. He wrote it so that people would believe, so that by reading it, people would be introduced to Jesus and believe in Jesus and have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book, so that's our purpose for going through the book, that people might read and believe. So that's why we're going through it. Now, let's dig in. We're going to dig into chapter 1 here. And as I said in your sermon supplement, in your handout, you have our summary statement for all of chapter 1. How would you summarize chapter 1? Here's my attempt. You might come up with something better. But here's my attempt to summarize what John is saying in chapter 1. He says this, I think, that God has come to us in Jesus so that we can come to him. If you want to summarize all of chapter 1, that's one way you could do it. God has come to us in Jesus so that we can come to him. And I'll explain how I get there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through three sections of this chapter, a lot of verses. We'll be blessed by reading them. We're going to walk through them first. I'll do some explanation of what's going on for the first little bit. And then at the end, I'll just make a couple statements about what do we learn about Jesus Christ from this passage and we'll close with a few points of application. That's the plan for today. Sound good? All right. Let's read the first 18 verses. This is the prologue to chapter one and the whole book. This is the introduction. There is a ton going on in verses one through 18. We could spend years unpacking one through 18. We're gonna spend a few minutes, all right? We're just gonna summarize it. And the main idea, I think, from verses one through 18 is simply this, that Jesus is the revelation of God. That's what John wants you to know. That's what he's trying to communicate in verses 1 through 18, that Jesus is the revelation of God, that Jesus reveals God, that in Jesus we see who God is. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. I'm reading from the NIV. We'll be using the NIV through this series. Verses 1 through 18. You can read along with me in your own Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke start on earth. John is different. He starts in heaven. You notice that difference. In the beginning was the Word. John starts with the Word as he was in heaven. Now, notice the Word is not an impersonal force. The word comes from God, emanates from God. The word is God. But but the word is not just some force of God. The word is a person, a being. John refers to him as he or him. The word also we see is God himself. The word is God. So there's identification with God. The word is God. But then there's also, confusingly, differentiation with God. The word is with God. So at the same time the word is God, the word is also with God, distinct from God the Father. And you know, John starts his gospel with the phrase, in the beginning. Is that a familiar phrase to you? First phrase of the Bible in Genesis, in the beginning. Genesis starts with creation, and here John starts his gospel with creation as well. In the beginning was the word who created. Everything that came into existence, all of creation, was created through the word who was in the beginning with God. So the word is eternal. The word is before creation. The word is, we'd say, pre-existent or eternally existent. Before anything that came to be came to be, the word was and is. The word is being, I am. And the word, just as God said, let there be light, the word was life and light. And the word shone, shines of the darkness, which I think John is telling us is a word of creation, light shining in darkness, and also a word of sanctification, a moral word. The light shines in this dark place. Because of the word. But not everybody loves the light. John tells us not everybody received the light. His own, which I think is a reference to Israel, his own did not receive him. Some did. John did. So here, John the apostle, the gospel writer, is talking about a different John, John the Baptist. And we'll get to him in a second. But John the Baptist testified about this light. And anybody who would accept this light, anybody who would believe in this word, they'll be given the right to become children of God. They'll become God's people, not by anything human, not because they were born to the right family, not because they did all the right things, They'll become children of God because God empowered them to do so. And we're going to talk about it more in a couple chapters in John 3. 
But how is it that we can see and know this word of God? How do you see a word? You can write it on a page, I guess. How do you touch light? How is this eternal word that was always existent before creation, how are created beings, us here in creation, how are we to know this word? And John tells us, the word, miracle of miracles, became flesh and dwelled among us. And that word for dwelled is tabernacled, encamped, set up a tent, lived with us. The word became flesh. That doesn't mean the word became flesh. It does not mean that the eternal word spirit changed into a fleshly being. It's not that the word transformed, becoming not spirit but physical. It doesn't mean that the word just kind of put on the appearance of a fleshly being, being earthly, or just kind of wore human clothes. And so the word, by miracle, is what we celebrate at Christmas, the word took on humanity. The infinite somehow added on finiteness. The word became flesh to live with us. And because the word is God, in the word become flesh, God is shown to us. You ever play around with invisible ink? We have kids who are into crafting, so sometimes this comes up. You have invisible ink and you write messages with it, and then what do you do to make it visible? You know, shine a light or have some heat, and it reveals the secret message. This is what Jesus is. He is the heat, the light that reveals the invisible ink of God. In Jesus, the word become flesh, God is revealed. This grace that has been given to us in Jesus is greater than any other grace that has come before. It surpasses every other revelation of God. Previously, God had revealed himself. This is a gracious way of revealing himself. God actually gave his people instructions on how to live. When you think about this, I don't know if we appreciate the law often as much as we should. God took the time to write down very specifically, here's how to live. He gave it to Moses, to Israel, on tablets, smoke and fire on a mountain, and descended to be with his people and said, I will show you. You don't have to ask any questions. Here you go. I will show you how to live. I'll spell it all out for you. That's grace. That's a good thing God has done. Here in Jesus is much greater grace. God has truly shown himself to us in Jesus. John says he's full of grace and truth. That's an interesting pair of words, grace and truth. You won't know this from your English, but those words, grace and truth, that pair, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, are the same words used, they're often a pair in the Old Testament, love and faithfulness. Grace and truth, the same words translated into love and faithfulness in the Old Testament. Where does that pair pop up? Well, there's one place 
where God says, I am abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you know where that is? It's where Moses asks, hey, God, can you reveal yourself to me? I want to see you. Next is 34. God has Moses hide in the rock. I'm just going to pass by you. You'll only be able to see the backside of me. Because if you could really see me, you wouldn't be able to handle it. And then what does God say about himself? In his revealing of himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Those are the same two words that are used here, full of grace and truth. And I think what John is doing is showing us that that same glory that Moses saw when God passed by the rock, that same glory of God that Moses beheld, we have now seen in Jesus Christ. The disciples saw the same glory that Moses did in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, God with us. Jesus is the revealing, the full revelation of God. So that's verses 1 through 18. Now, 19 through 34. Jesus is the revelation of God. John the Baptist, John and John the Apostle, the Gospel writer, will tell us Jesus is the salvation of God. And that's what's going on in verses 19 through 34. People are wondering, who is this John the Baptist guy? And John the Baptist is going to say, let me tell you about Jesus. He's the salvation of God. He's the Lamb, the one with the Spirit. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. Israel was looking for a savior. Under the thumb of Roman oppression, 
God had been silent for a few hundred years. They hadn't had a prophet come. They were looking for salvation, looking for someone to come and save them, a king after David to come. So there were those, you may or may not know this, there were those in Jesus' time, before Jesus' time, there were a lot of pretenders to the throne. There were people who claimed to be Messiah. There were messianic movements that sprang up from time to time. So when John the Baptist is in the wilderness baptizing people, gathering a following, there are going to be some from probably the Sanhedrin, the leadership group in Jerusalem, who are sent to check it out and say, what's going on here? Is this another kind of false Messiah movement we have to put down? What's going on? So a group is sent out to John the Baptist where he's baptizing people, gaining a following. He's got his church going. A group is sent out, and they're asking, okay, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And where others said, yes, 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 I'm the Messiah, I'm bringing salvation, John's like, no. Humbly, accurately, he says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Savior. So they follow up, okay, are you Elijah? Because Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Do you remember how Elijah died? He didn't. He was taken up. So there was an expectation that Elijah, just as he was taken up, would return in the same way. God would send Elijah, literal, actual Elijah again. So there's an expectation that maybe Elijah would return. So are you Elijah? Are you the, the, that great prophet? No. Okay, if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? Deuteronomy 18.18 writes that someday a prophet like Moses would come. So there's an expectation that somebody like Moses, what did Moses do? How do he be like Moses? Well, he saved, redeemed people out of captivity, Israel out of captivity, gave the covenant. Somebody like that prophet, the prophet, there's an expectation that they knew Moses would come. Are you him? No. Okay, then who are you? And what are you doing? Good questions. What are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you ministering? What's going on here? And John tells him, I'm just here to point to somebody else. I am here to make paths straight for the Lord to come. If you Google paintings of John the Baptist, you'll often find a lot of the paintings of John the Baptist that he's pointing. I think actually Da Vinci's last painting is believed to be of John the Baptist, and it's a, pa a painting where he's pointing somewhere else because that's what John the Baptist does. He doesn't point to himself. He points to the Messiah the Lord, look to him, one greater than me. And then he sees him. Jesus passes by where John's doing ministry and says, look, there he is, behold, the Lamb of God. And we who are churchy people, we know what this means, right? The Lamb of God. Why were lambs significant? Well, they were sacrificed in the temple to atone for sins, to make people right with God. You brought your animal Sacrifice a lamb. There's the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb that went on the doorposts to save people from judgment and death that was passing by before the Exodus and the plague of the death of the firstborn son. Blood of the lamb covered the doorposts. There's Isaiah 53, where it said that the one will come, the suffering servant, who will be led like a lamb to slaughter who will atone for, God's, for people's sins before God. So what John is saying very clearly, here's the Savior. This is him. He's the lamb. He's the one who will sacrifice himself 
to save people from their sins. And John says, he's the one with the spirit. I baptize with water, he's got something else or someone else. He says, I saw the spirit of God descend upon him in baptism when when Jesus baptized and then God opened up and spoke and this is my son with whom I'm well pleased and the spirit descended upon Jesus. Now there's an interesting word or a good word that I know there that John puts here. It says the spirit remained on him. I saw the spirit remain on him. Not just come down. The spirit is not just on Jesus, but the spirit remained on Jesus. How is that different from what we've seen before? Those of you who are in the judges, Bible study, the Sunday school class, Samson had the spirit come on him quite often, but then leave. <laughs> the spirit would come and anoint Samson for uh, some powerful work and then leave because it wasn't very long before Samson would displease God and the spirit would depart. And the spirit would come on and, appoint and anoint kings in the Old Testament. The spirit would come temporarily and anoint kings in the Old Testament for power and for ministry. So, and the spirit would come and dwell in the temple, in the tabernacle. God's presence was there. His spirit dwelled. But even in the tabernacle, even in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the spirit, God's presence eventually departed and left. Why? Because the people of God constantly displeased God, sinned against him, and spirit would depart. Well, here's the miraculous thing. The spirit comes and remains on Jesus because Jesus is the one who never displeases God. He is one who has the spirit remain on him because he is God's son and walks with him. He's the savior. And not only does the spirit remain on Jesus' son, but then he baptizes with the spirit and brings salvation to those who follow him. John will sprinkle with water, symbolically making you part of his movement. Jesus doesn't just give a symbolic baptism. He truly imparts the spirit of salvation to those who follow him because Jesus is the salvation of God. All right, last section, verses 35 through 51. Jesus is the revelation of God, the salvation of God, and now we learn Jesus is our connection to God. As Jesus gathers disciples, he will teach his disciples that their connection to God is through him. Jesus is our connection to God. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and would follow Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother, Simon, and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. 
Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here Jesus gathers his first disciples. Who are his first disciples? They are John's disciples. Don't overlook that fact. John ministers, gathers disciples, and then points them to Jesus. A couple of disciples ask, hey, can we stay with you? That's what they're asking. Where are you staying? They're saying, can, I, can we follow you? Can we be with you? And they spend the rest of the day with him. Now, one of those disciples is Andrew. Did you notice something as you were reading? Verse 41. What is the first thing that Andrew does? The first thing Andrew does once he finds the Messiah, goes and tells. He goes and tells his brother. I know somebody who might be interested in the Messiah. I'm going to go tell him. Here we have biblical evangelism. Now tell me, how many classes did Andrew take? How much training did he have in evangelism and apologetics? You don't have to be well trained to be an evangelist. You just have to know the Messiah and be able to say, come and see. Let me show you who the Messiah is. And then Jesus does the work, right? Who's the one doing the transforming work here? Andrew tells his brother, his brother comes, Simon goes to Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, I'm gonna change you. <laughs> First thing he does, he renames him. I'm not entirely sure why. I don't know why Jesus does the Abram, Abraham thing and renames him. I'm, Maybe we'll find out. I don't know. Maybe you have an answer. But at the very least, it shows us that Jesus begins the transforming work of this man from Simon the fisherman to Peter, Cephas, the rock, the leader of the apostles. It starts here. Andrew just brings him along. Jesus does the work of changing him. Then Jesus receives a couple more disciples. He leaves to Galilee, finds Philip, calls Philip to him which is unusual because usually rabbis did not do that. Rabbis did not call students to follow them. Usually students asked to follow rabbis. That's the way it worked in that culture. Jesus goes against the grain and says, hey, you, come, follow me, which is the definition of discipleship, following Jesus. And Philip does the exact same thing that Andrew did. He finds somebody and says, hey, come. Come see this guy. I found the Messiah. And he goes to Nathaniel. I found this Jesus, a son of Joseph of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel famously do? Or say, 
Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the first objection to following Jesus. You have your first opportunity for apologetics. We were talking about it in a Sunday school class earlier. And what do we do if people don't want to follow or have questions or objections? I think, actually, Philip might present a good model for us. I'm not going to try and argue with you. I just, he's from Nazareth. Just, just come and see him. Come and be introduced to Jesus. He'll probably answer your questions. So he brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and what we find is Nathaniel's meeting Jesus is that Jesus already has met Nathaniel. Jesus already knows him. He says, here's a true Israelite. When I read that, I, I think he's a real American, a real American hero. What does that mean, true Israelite? I think what Jesus is getting at is there are a lot of people who came to seek Jesus with all sorts of mixed motives, and we're going to see them throughout the gospel. I think what he's saying is here's somebody who's coming with integrity, and he really wants to know. He has maybe a slight objection from Nazareth, but he wants to know the Messiah. He's a genuine Israelite looking for the Messiah, and he has found him in Jesus. Jesus already knows Nathaniel. He saw him under the fig tree. Again, mystery here. I don't know what that means. or We're not told what the significance of the fig tree is. There are hints throughout Scripture, but we're not really told. But it meant something to Nathaniel. It meant something to Nathaniel. Nathaniel knew he already sees me and knows me. So he makes a confession. Here, the Son of God. King of Israel. I'm previewing another confession of a dubious person later. Now, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 50. Nathaniel makes his confession You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Basically, Jesus responds to him saying, You ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Buckle up. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world is that about? Do you remember way back in Genesis, Jacob who is renamed Israel, but the father of Israel, Jacob has a vision at Bethel, which means the house of God. Jacob has a vision, uh, we call it Jacob's ladder. If you heard the song from Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven, this is what you're gonna imagine now every time you hear that, all 15 minutes of it. Um, Jacob has a vision of basically kind of like the attic that's opened up and the stairs come down. He has a vision of heaven being opened and a stairway coming down, and angels going up and down on the stairway. That's Jacob's vision, this ladder to heaven, a connection between heaven and earth. Jesus here says, I think basically I'm the ladder. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is a way of saying, I am the connection between heaven and earth. If you want to be connected to God, you'll be connected through me. Come and follow. Follow Jesus. 
when you do, you'll be connected to God because Jesus is the connection to heaven, to the Father. So there's a summary of the first chapter of John. Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the salvation of God. He's our connection to God. So what have we learned about Jesus? Here's a couple statements, a couple things we've learned about Jesus. There's more there. But if we've learned and we've seen that as the word, Jesus has all the attributes of God. So those first few verses are telling us that whatever God is, whatever attributes God has, the word who became flesh in Jesus has those attributes. He is eternal. He is the word. He is before creation. He is the creator. And that is definition, God. One of the very core attributes of who God is. He's the creator. He is light. He is life. Anything that God is, the word is. And Jesus is. Second, as man, Jesus is God with us. So he dwells with us, that God did not want to remain distant from us, but he tabernacled, he made his home among us, that we have the presence of God. And this is the great mystery of history, how it is that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, but it's a reality, it's the truth, that as a man, Jesus is God with us. And then third, John shows us that as Messiah, Jesus is the Lamb of God and has the Spirit of God. How is it that Jesus is our Savior? He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who connects us to God through giving us his spirit, who changes and sanctifies us. He's the spirit-filled, spirit-sending lamb of God. Now let's close just a couple words of application. What grace for us is there in this chapter? Three points. First, consider this. We can truly know God through Jesus. And for some of us, though it's just a plain as day truth, we understand that, we know that, and maybe we don't marvel at it all that much, but we should take a moment to marvel at this truth that we can and do truly know God. And that is a countercultural claim, right? Isn't the, the religion of our day, I'm spiritual but not religious, Right? Have you heard that phrase? I'm not the only one who's heard that, right? That's the common belief. We recognize there's some higher power out there. We recognize that it's good to be spiritual. Surely this can't be it. But I don't want to be so arrogant as to claim that we can actually know what that is. I don't want to be exclusive. So I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not specific. That's the religion of our day. And John blows all of that out of the water when he says, no, here is God revealed concretely, truthfully, personally in Jesus Christ. You can know him. In fact, it is not God's intent to remain hidden. It is not God's intent to be uh, a mysterious man behind a curtain that you will never meet. No, God has shown himself to you concretely. You can truly and actually know him and say, I know God because I know Jesus Christ, my Savior. You can know God, and John wants you to know that right out of the bat. Here's God. He is revealed to us in Jesus Christ the man. Second, John the Baptist tells us we are not the Messiah, but Jesus is. We look to John the Baptist's example, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior, but I know him. What a great example in our ministries. 
It's humbling. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the center. It's not all about me. It doesn't all revolve around me. I, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. But it's comforting. I'm not the Messiah. Do you see the comfort in that, the peace we can have in that? It is not my job to convert you. It is not my job to save you. I can't. That's Jesus' work. All I can do is be a faithful witness that says, hey, there's Jesus. Let him work on you. Let me point you to him. That's what John the Baptist does. Last point of application, there are many others, but here's the last one I thought of. Our primary calling is to follow Jesus. We are called to him. He is the one who connects us to God, to heaven. We have other important callings. So what are you called to do? You have callings. You might be called to be a parent or a spouse. You may be called to be a musician, called to be a nurse, called to be a teacher, called to lead a business. And you might be called even a minister to do that vocationally. Those are all significant, important callings that you have to take seriously. But they are all secondary to the primary call, which is to Jesus. Your primary calling, before all other callings, as important as they may be, your primary calling is to follow Jesus Christ. Your primary calling is to a man, to a person. Not to a work, not to a school, not to an organization, not to a ministry, not to a role, not to a job, not to a family member. None of those are your primary callings. Your primary calling, it's not even to a set of theology or a tradition within religion. Your primary calling is to a person, the man, Jesus Christ. Follow him. As your primary calling, as you follow him, you'll find that all your other callings are put in place where they to be. So the question at the end is, will you accept the call? I think that's the question John kind of leaves us with here. Here he is. Here's Jesus. Will you accept the call to follow him? If you have accepted the call, will you extend the call to others to come and follow Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the son of God, the Lamb of God, the one full of grace and truth, who is life and light, the creator, the word made flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, what an exciting calling we have to come and follow Jesus Christ, the one who connects us to heaven, who saves us, who shows us who you are. Lord, we thank you for the the greater grace we've been given in Jesus. We have not deserved this. We have not earned our place with him, uh, your love through him. None of that is given because we've earned it, simply because you've given it to us. So we praise you this morning. We worship you. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us more faithful 
followers of Jesus Christ, and that we might extend that call to others, um, that you might empower us to do that by your spirit sent by your son. And Lord, as we look forward to the rest of this book, I pray that it would sanctify us. I pray that it would encourage us. I pray that it would challenge us, uh, shape us, mold us, and make us more like your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.